Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 1. We're going to be covering uh, verses 19 through 28 this morning. Um, a little over a week ago, I was talking to a man who told me that he had lost both of his brothers to death. Uh, one by cancer, and I didn't hear what the other one uh, passed away from. And this man I was talking to was only in his late 40s, so you can imagine the grief that he went through losing two siblings. And some of you have lost a sibling, and you know uh, just how hard that is. Well, I was talking, to, as this man was sharing a bit of his story, he said that because, of his, because his brothers knew that their time on earth was going to be cut short, they, they each actually filmed, shot a short video that they would then give to their children. And it was a way for their children to, to know something of uh, their, their father's faith. It was a way to reassure them in the gospel. It was a way to encourage them in biblical truth, maybe even help them through the variety of stages of life that their kids would encounter. And it was also a chance for these, these two guys to, to share with their children a little bit about their family history. So they would have that knowledge and uh, so they would know a little bit more about who they were and where they'd come from. Sometime in the early or the latter part of the first century, early Christians sort of felt that same need, the need to preserve the memory of their history, the need to, uh, to reiterate and, and, and pass down the, the knowledge of some of those important events that had taken place. And there was a white-haired old man with a long gray beard, a man who was hunched over from years of fishing, years of uh, traveling around by foot, a man hobbled around uh, by a cane. But it was a man who was the last, perhaps the last living companion of Jesus Christ. Uh, his name was John. And he was not only a disciple of Jesus, but he was one who was brought into the inner circle a man who would experience unbelievable things with Jesus, a man who was invited into some spectacular scenes like the, at the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, a man who was invited into the Garden of Gethsemane on, on, as Jesus was nearing uh, his own death. And in his twilight hour, John felt a sense of urgency to pass on what he'd seen, felt, and experienced. So along with the urging of some of the Christians of that day, again, the latter part of the first century, some of those Christians were afraid that they would lose not only their pastor, this man John, but also they would lose some of the details of his very own eyewitness experiences. So they implored him to, to write down what he'd seen, felt, and experienced. And he did that. He wrote down his story in what we know as the Gospel of John. In fact, John tells us why he recorded his own, why he wrote the Gospel at the very end of his book. Chapter 20, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, he says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we have this gospel preserved, this gospel by an eyewitness of Jesus, uh, John, and we're working our way through it sort of section by section, which is our custom here at Capshaw, trying to consider the text in its broader context. And we've spent the last couple of weeks looking at the prologue, the very beginning of the book, and now we kind of make our way into the body of the book. And we're going to see this morning some very significant things related to a Christian's identity. So 
John chapter 1. Let me just read the, the section. It's not that long. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. This is the word of God. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. There was a multimedia movement in the early 2000s called I Am Second, and it featured a, a series of short video vignettes from some famous and some not-so-famous people who would declare through these anywhere from five- to eight-minute videos that through their failures and setbacks, through their uh, victories and 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 struggles through their fame and even their ignominy, they recognized and wanted to publicly confess that they were not the ones worthy of being idolized. They were in fact second. Christ was first to them. He was the one deserving of glory, fame, and worship. These are folks like hip-hop artist Lecrae, uh, talk show host Kathy Lee Gifford, uh, former Navy SEAL Remy Adelike, Olympic gold medalist Scott Hamilton, NFL quarterback Sam Bradford, all of these folks, and there were many, many others who took the time to sit in a chair, a big uh, uh, a chair with a black background, and they would then talk about how they actually had come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He was a first, he was preeminent, he was a first priority in their lives. Well, 2,000 years before the I Am Second movement, John the Baptist was the first to make the point by his life and his witness, look, I'm not the important one here. I'm not the one who should be worshipped. I'm not the one who should be idolized. I'm actually here to point to, to draw attention to another. Now, last week we read, and by the way, just so you're not confused here, there, there are two Johns that we'll be talking about. There's John the Evangelist, who's the one who, who penned this gospel, and then there's John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, who's going to be appear in the first uh, couple of chapters. But John the Evangelist says this about John the Baptist in John chapter 1. He said, John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness about the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So here's the situation that we kind of, we're walking our way into here in the text. John the Baptist, who's a bit of an eccentric person, a bit of a strange person, he's out in the wilderness, traveling around Israel, eating locusts and wild honey as he liked to do, and he's preaching and he's baptizing. Verse 28 tells us he is in Bethany across from the Jordan. So uh, this, this is a, a somewhat important. This is a different Bethany than the little village where Jesus' friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus came from. So this is a different one. Uh, this Bethany is actually somewhere 
We don't know exactly, and people have wrestled with the exact location, but it's somewhere near the ancient ruins of Jericho. So what that means is it's actually way out there, right? It's a long way. It's at least 20 plus miles from Jerusalem where this contingent comes from to question John. So it would be a bit like us sort of uh, walking to Ardmore. You know, Ardmore is about, I don't know, 20 or 22 miles. Uh, With apologies to my friend Sandy who goes to the church who lives in Ardmore. I don't know why anyone would ever go there. But, but this is like us walking to Ardmore, right? It's a long trip, only there would be more sort of streams and, and, and obstacles in the way. And so this is a long way out there, but the Pharisees get wind of John doing his preaching and baptizing there. So again, they send, this, they send these two parties, the priests and the Levites, to figure out what, what's going on here? What is this guy doing? Now, that initially begs the question, why would they even care? There were all kinds of preachers and poets and teachers in first century Israel. But John the Baptist was doing something very unusual. Not only was he preaching messages that were bold and authoritative that really sort of garnered the attention of people, but he was calling people to repent. Even Israel, even Israel, calling Israel to repent. And the people of Israel didn't think they had anything of which to repent, any reason to repent. After all, they were the people of God. They were the descendants of Abraham. So they thought, how dare this guy? He's actually calling us to repent. You may may remember, this is a a scene we're going to come to in about, I don't know, a couple of months where um, the religious leaders and the Pharisees are around Jesus and Jesus uh, offers his very well-known saying, he says, I've come to bring you the truth, and the truth will set you free, right? Remember that? Well, the Pharisees were around, and they said, we don't, we don't need your freedom. We're doing just fine as it is. In fact, we've never been enslaved to anyone, which was one of the most ridiculous things that anybody says in Scripture. Uh, because at this point in, in history, they had already been enslaved. The people of Israel had already been enslaved by just about every powerhouse nation in the world. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Syrians, uh, the Egyptians. And so they had been enslaved by just about everybody. But they say, look, we don't need your freedom, Jesus. We've never been enslaved by anyone. What they were saying was, we're spiritually free. We're not under any condemnation because of our ancestors. We are descendants of Abraham. Abraham is our father, they say to Jesus. Do you remember what he says in return? He says, no, your father is the devil. Just about as extreme as he can possibly go with this. But they're saying, look, we don't need your salvation. We don't need your message. We don't need your freedom. You have to understand, we are descendants of Abraham. They're so puffed up with ethnic, familial, and religious pride that they fail to see their own sinfulness and their own need for a savior. Well, when these same people hear about John the Baptist's ministry, they want to find him and they want to call him out on this. This message may be one for the neighboring uh, villages. This may be one for people of other countries. They believe, but it's certainly not a message for the people of Israel. But John will not be deterred because, and this is our first point this morning, repenting and believing are regular and unending rhythms for those who are the people of God. They say, look, you don't know who you're talking to here. 
You must not understand who we come from. We are of the line of Abraham. Abraham is our father. We don't need to repent. And John the Baptist would continue with this message of repenting and believing, recognizing and understanding that repenting and believing are regular and unending rhythms for those who are the people of God. Now, you've probably heard uh, the word repent. Um, it's a Hebrew word, shuv. It just means I was going in one direction. I made an about face. It's a military term, actually, and I started going in the other direction. It refers to people who were walking again in one way. They turned around. They, they did a 180 and started going in the other direction. But biblical repentance is actually much more than that. It's, so, it's certainly more than just a change of direction. The Greek word for it is the word metanoia, which literally means afterthought. Repentance is the thought, the emotion that pops in our head, in our hearts, after we've done something wrong. It's a feeling of remorse. It's a feeling of guilt. It's a feeling of contrition. But just like the Pharisees, we don't like to be called a repentance either. It's a feeling of remorse that, that leads us to humbly seek God and His mercy, but we don't really like to be called a repentance either because repenting means that we've done something wrong. Repenting means that we actually don't have it all together. You know, we'd like other people to believe that. We would much rather expend our energy defending ourselves our character, our reputation, than actually repenting of our sinfulness and trusting in Jesus' work. Now, do you realize that it's actually easier to improve our behavior than it is to repent over it? It's easier to, to make some behavioral changes than it is to actually be broken. And actually, here's where the great irony comes in. This is paradoxical on some level, any renewed efforts to improve our behavior without the sense of brokenness first, they're actually counterintuitive because they, they, what they do is they bolster our sense of self and they fuel our pride and self-reliance. Uh, one biblical scholar, Ethan Richardson, says this, unless this moment comes first, now this is a reference to brokenness, repentance, a change in action can actually work the opposite of repentance. The old Adam, who must be righteous and will never accept blame, is alive and well in believers. The idea that we will be better people next week, next month, is far more pleasing to talk about than our ongoing sin. What he's saying is if, if you just try to control your anger without actually being broken over it, it's counterintuitive. It's counterproductive because what happens is, say you do make a stride in two in controlling your anger, then you just feel more confident in self. You feel more self-assured. You feel more independent. It will lead us to pride and never greater dependence on God. That is a change of behavior unless repentance comes first. It's only as we begin to see ourselves in light of God's holiness, in light of this great and perfect king, that all the excuse-making, all the blame-shifting, all of the life improvement projects then become detestable to us. And we're simply left naked and undone before a holy God. Now, which leads those of us who are in Christ to believing. Repentance that believes leads to believing, believing in Jesus' work on the cross, believing in the risen Lord and that he's our only hope for salvation. So life for the people of God, life for those who are in Christ 
begins with repentance and faith, and that posture continues throughout the life of the believer. We never get beyond the need to repent and believe in the gospel. Of course we don't. But how often do we, oh, I'm so guilty of this myself, we, we view spiritual growth as learning more facts. We think about somebody who knows all the details, you know, somebody who's going to win every uh, edition of Bible trivia, we think, oh, they must be really mature. What a godly person. How often do we view spiritual maturity simply as learning more facts or even reading our Bible more, doing more, when spiritual growth in the Scriptures is presented as being more repentant and more trusting in Jesus' work? In fact, there's this great exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders in Matthew's gospel. And there's this sort of back and forth. And Jesus says, I desire, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Which means I'm actually more impressed with your willingness to identify with the broken and lost than I am your good works. I'm actually more impressed with your willingness to confess your own sinfulness and your own brokenness than I am with all the things you've accomplished and all the sacrifices you make. In other words, I'm more interested in your humility than I am in your spirituality. That's what Jesus is saying. Here at Capshaw, we have eight men who are part of our elder training track, and um, we're going to meet on Monday evenings, and we've already met a couple times. And I've asked these guys to read as part of the training a number of articles and listen to a podcast or two and a sermon and then read portions of some books. And one of the books that I've asked the guys to read is by a former pastor and counselor by the name of Paul David Tripp. It's a book called Dangerous Calling. And in this book, Tripp, he warns over and over and over and over again about mistaking biblical knowledge for maturity. Here's what he writes. Biblical maturity is never just about what we know. It's always about how grace has employed what you have come to know to transform the way you live. Is it not dangerous for us to become comfortable with the message of the Bible while not being broken, grieved, and convicted by it? And thus move to a life-shaping love for Christ and a worship of Him? Now people say, oh, I've read the Bible through every year for the past 40 years. But are you more repentant? Are you more broken? I had a, an associate pastor, that I, a very good friend that I worked very closely alongside. He said, one of the most scandalous things I've ever heard anyone say in ministry, and I was very glad that he said it and I didn't, but he told a, a small group of, of senior adults, senior adults in our church, he said, you guys need to stop reading the Bible so much and start loving people better and repenting more. It's always good when you're a senior pastor and you have someone around you that, that, that can be a lightning rod every once in a while. I was, those people, at first, they were kind of indifferent toward me, then they just loved me after that. So, but they weren't so fond of this guy anymore. But he said, look, it's, you, know, you can read your Bible, you read your Bible and you know more and you can memorize passages. Look, there's nothing wrong with it. That's good. That's good. But are you more broken as a result? Are you more repentant as a result? Are you more humble as a result? Do you love people better and with more grace as a result? Repentance that leads to worship is what happens to people who are confronted with God's holiness and gripped by God's grace. Repentance that leads to worship. 
But this would be very hard for the religious leaders to accept. Again, here's a guy attracting these large crowd, these large crowds. People are coming from all over to listen to him, and he's calling everyone to repentance. So they send people to him and they say to him, "Who are you? Who are you?" It's such an important question, isn't it? Nine letters, but they form three piercing words. Who are you? Do you ever get distracted when you're driving around and end up at the wrong place? Maybe I'm the only one who does this, but sometimes I'll be driving somewhere. The other day we were get, trying to go out to, for dinner, a real quick dinner. We ended up at Kohl's. And my, my kids are like, what, what are we doing here? I, I couldn't remember like, how we got there. This happens to me all the time. I'm distracted easily. Well, there's a, there's a story of an ancient rabbi, a Middle Eastern rabbi by the name of Akiva, who ventures into a village to, to gather some food and supplies. So he goes into his village. And then as he's going back to his very own cottage, he gets distracted. And he, he wanders down the wrong path. And then it starts to get dark. He's starting to worry, okay, wh- wh- where am I? What's happening? He hears a voice out of the darkness that says, who are you? And why are you here? Well, he's Akiva. He's kind of surprised by the voice. He doesn't know where he he is. He thinks maybe God is talking to him. So he kind of stops where he is, stops in his tracks. And then he looks up and he notices that he's gone. He's inadvertently wandered into a Roman military post. And the voice had come from a young soldier keeping guard from a high tower above. He hears this voice again out of the middle of nowhere. Who are you? Well, As rabbis often do, Akiva answered the question with another question. He said to the young soldier, how much do they pay you to stand at guard and ask that question to all who approach? The soldier, comforted by the fact that this was not an intruder but a rabbi, he said, well, he answered, he said, sir, they pay me five drachmas a week. At that point, Akiva said to him, young man, I will double your pay If you will come with me, stand in front of my house and ask me that question every morning as I begin my day, who are you and why are you here? See, it's such an important question, but it's one that we hardly ever really consider, do we? Who are we? Why are we here? There's a reason that Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, says one of the most curious things in in his writings, he says in Ecclesiastes, he says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. It's better to go actually to a funeral than it is to go to a wedding. And you say, wow, this guy's really dark. Like, what does he mean by that? Well, what he goes on to say is because this, it's, out of, it's out of a house of mourning that we actually consider life's ultimate questions. Who are we? Who am I? Why am I here? What's next for me? What's next after this life? How many people just muddle through life because they never actually consider that question? Who am I and why am I here? Well, look at the way John the Baptist answers in verses 20 through 23. So they said to him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, what's interesting is that when John is asked the question, he actually responds with three I am not statements. Now, I think there's something actually we can learn here. I think there's something we're intended to learn here. Sometimes in order for us to actually realize who we are, we have to first understand who we're not. 
For example, we're not people who are in control of our own lives. We can make plans and we can make arrangements and we can strategize, but we're actually not in control. And as those who are Christians, we have relinquished control of our own lives to the lordship of another. We're not people who are responsible for the completion of our own salvation. That's reassuring, isn't it? It's actually not all riding on, I'm very thankful, it's not all riding on me. But actually it's riding on the completed work of another, the one who said it is finished. Likewise, we're not people who make decisions in a vacuum. We pray and we consider, we seek counsel, we consider all of our decisions. What's actually going to bring God glory and advance his kingdom? So when we consider things like what we're going to do as a career, where we might live, to whom we'll marry, we'll be married, where we'll go to school, whatever it is, we say, what's going to bring God glory and advance his kingdom? And yet, has anyone ever asked that question? before they considered a person to marry or a career or a school or a place to live? Has anyone ever asked, what's actually going to advance God's kingdom? Perhaps a few. I said to my son the other day, who's narrowing down his list of potential colleges, I said, look, there are a lot of things to consider. There's a, lot, there's a long list of things to consider. The level of scholarship, the cost, the campus, the ratio of boys to girls, right? the quality of the cafeteria food, distance from home, all these things. Now, these are all fair things to consider. But the number one thing to consider is how will this, career, how will this school and the career you choose as a result of going there help you to advance God's kingdom? We don't make decisions in a vacuum. Likewise, as we, can, we think about who we're not, we also have to confess we're not lone rangers in this. We have decided to throw in our lot with a group of other imperfect, unreliable, sinful people, the church of Jesus Christ. We're not alone. We've actually, we've, we belong to one another. We're not perfect, and we cannot expect perfection from others. Now, that's a good reality check every once in a while, isn't it? We're not perfect. In a world that says every single person is the best, or a world that says, you deserve it all. We need, to, we need to be reminded we're actually not the center of the universe. We don't deserve it all. Sometimes we have to recognize who we're not in order to understand who we are. And that's where John the Baptist starts. Verse 20, John confessed and did not deny, but confessed that he was not the Christ. That's an interesting way to begin to answer, I'm not the Christ. And, and John the evangelist goes to great lengths to show the extent to which he denies this. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed that he was not the Christ. Now, if somebody asked me, who are you? I probably wouldn't begin by saying who I'm not. So I'd say, hey, let me, who are you anyway? I would not say I'm not the president, right? That, that doesn't make sense, right? I, I wouldn't say, for example, I'm not Jason Momoa. That's the, uh, now that, that one would make more sense. He, Jason Momoa is the... Uh, the guy who played Aquaman. And people are constantly getting us confused. They, they, they say that, uh, I guess we have the exact same physique or something. But people, are, people will say, are, are you? And I, I wouldn't necessarily begin by saying I'm not Jason Momoa. I wouldn't, in fact, there's nobody that I would say I'm not. I might start to say a few things about who I am, right? I think John's answer, here, here's why John does this. His answer reveals just how acutely aware he was 
that he was actually no one's savior. That he himself had zero power in himself to transform anybody's life. Only Jesus can do that. Yeah, as Christians, yes, we are the light of the world, right? We are the salt of the earth. We're all of those things, but we're not Christ. It won't be our lifestyle. It won't be our reputation. It won't be the way that we serve one another necessarily that actually, certainly that saves anyone. It might be because we love each other in a certain way that we attract people to Jesus, but only Jesus can save. We are his witnesses. Now, John the Baptist, you notice he gets progressively terse with his answers. His first answer is, I am not the Christ. Then he just says, I am not. And then finally he says, no, just leave me alone already, right? It's kind of like, for some reason, my kids always ask me to go to Handel's like at 10 at night. You know, they, I don't know why that's the, it's kind of always on their minds, but they say, hey, can we, we go to Handel's? Say, you know, it's, I know, it's kind of late and it's kind of cold. I don't really want to go right now. Come on, Dad, can we go to, can we go to Handel's? Say, um, no, let's not do it tonight. They say, Dad, can we go to Handel's? I'm like, no, we're not going. Please, don't ever ask me that again. I'll bring it up to you. You don't bring it up to me. He's, he's getting frustrated with these comparisons, right? Um, but they just keep going. And they, they want to know who he is. They can't very well go back to the people who sent him and say, well, we can tell you three things he's not. No, they have to actually have an answer here. What he's doing, though, by his answer is he's very subtly displaying the supremacy of Jesus Christ. There was a belief among some of the Jewish people of the day that, that Elijah would return before the great and dreadful day of the Lord and and John says, no, I'm not Elijah. And there were plenty also who thought, based on kind of a misunderstanding of Deuteronomy 18, that, that the prophet, perhaps even Moses, would come back and at the end of time and speak the words of God. And just, John says, no, I'm, I'm not either of those. John says, I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, how does he make straight the way of the Lord? And these last two points are going to come in, in, in a more rapid succession well, in ancient Near Eastern thought, the idea of making a highway straight uh, meant to remove obstacles so the honored one could actually pass through. And so a messenger or a prophet would pass along a word to the construction folks or the engineers or whatever and say, you have to make this path straight. In other words, get all the obstacles out of the way, level the ground, clear out the debris, push back the rocks and the thorns. John the Baptist is simply removing the rocks and stirring up the soil by helping people see their own need for a Savior. So when that Savior comes, hopefully their hearts will be soft. Here's our second point this morning. The good news of a Savior is only welcomed by those who rightly understand the bad news. And the bad news, quite frankly, is this. There's no one obedient enough. There's no one good enough. There's no one active enough, kind enough, who serves enough. There's no one generous enough. There's, no, there's not one person good, the Apostle Paul says, not one. We all need this Savior who would come and has come. And John is announcing the coming of a Savior, a Redeemer, a Rescuer. But in doing so, he must point out first the sinfulness, the brokenness of humanity and call all people to repent. Unless we recognize how bad we are, in light of God's holiness, we'll never appreciate 
the magnitude, the majesty, just how amazing God's grace is in Jesus Christ. Now look at verses 25 through 27 again. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even who comes after me. Now listen to this. He says, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. The religious leaders want to know, well, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, why are you baptizing people? And John says, look, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. The one I'm talking about is so much greater than I am that I'm not even worthy to untie his, stand, his sandals. Now, think about this in your house, okay? You, you do, if you do most of the housework or maybe you delegate to your kids or whatever it is, what's the most demeaning task that exists in your house? Maybe it's cleaning the toilet, you know? Maybe it's, it's cleaning the bathroom floor. Maybe it's, it's vacuuming a certain room. Well, in, the, in first century Jewish culture, the most demeaning task of the household servants involved the master's feet. The servants would wash their master's feet. They would, they would actually clean the sandals of their master, even remove their sandals at the end of the day. Well, think about this. So, the, the ancient rabbis had students. They had their own disciples, their students, and their students would care for and look after the rabbis, but the rabbis wouldn't even let their own disciples mess with their sandals because, you know, in ancient, in ancient Jerusalem, ancient Near East, you had animals that were roaming all over, and so who knows what the rabbi might step in, right? I mean, there was, there was feces and mud and urine and all this stuff, so, so the rabbis wouldn't even let their own students sort of deal with their sandals. And so, again, while a master would allow his servant to wash his feet, his sandals were considered off-limits. That was just too low of a task. Well, John the Baptist flips the script on this, doesn't he? He says, the lowest of all the tasks, you pick the single lowest task that anybody can do for another person, mess with their sandals, untie the straps of their sandals. I'm not even worthy to do that. You take the most demeaning, the most incredibly low thing that anybody could do, I'm not worthy to do it for the one who'll come after me. He's that much greater than I am. Now, he goes on to say, I baptize with water. Now, this is a way for him to make a distinction between the baptism that he offers and the one that Christ offers. Uh, in, Matthew, his, in Matthew's gospel, he would write more about this. He would say that, John the Baptist would record a little bit more and say, John the Baptist says, I baptize with water, but the one who would come after me, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John does what we do in baptizing folks. Basically, we, we baptize someone, we, we, we dip them into the water. It's a symbol or an outward picture of what God has done for them inwardly, raising them to new life in Christ. However, the baptism that Jesus performs is actually a, a metaphor or a reference to the new birth that he, in fact, actually grants. By his sovereign grace, God brings a person to a place of repentance unto life, faith unto life. And at that moment, God acts upon a person so lovingly and so powerfully as to bring that person to brokenness, to faith, to believing, 
and then transfers them from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom, from fear to peace. They are baptized with the Spirit and fire. It's one act, it's not two. Again, it's a reference to the saving work of Jesus Christ. And what John says is, Jesus is infinitely greater because what he does is infinitely greater than what I can do. To be baptized by John, again, meant be, to be dipped into the water as a sign of repentance. To be baptized by Jesus in this, this metaphor meant to be cleansed from the inside out. And here's what John is getting at. It's our final point this morning. Jesus is greater than John because he alone can purify and make new. See, what John did, it was a symbol of what Jesus can do. You go into the water, it's, it's, you're buried in the likeness with Christ. You come out of the water, you're raised to walk in newness of Christ. It's a symbol of what Jesus actually does. What Jesus does is he takes those who are dead and he makes them alive. He takes those who are enslaved to sin and the law and he gives them freedom. He takes those who are broken and lost and he provides for them away by rescuing them. See, what John the Baptist did was meaningful. What Jesus does is miraculous. John, what John did was a symbol of the miracle that Jesus performs. See, when Jesus cleanses someone as they repent and believe in him, he takes their sins and he blots them out. And he says, I will forgive your wickedness and I will remember your sins no more. How incredible is this? If you are in Christ, God promises that he will remember your sins no more. doesn't matter what you've done. And maybe what you've done is worse in your mind than what anybody else has ever done. But in Christ, God says, I will remember your sins no more. I'm going to cast them as far apart as the east is from the west. I'm not going to hold them against you. I'm not going to bring them back up. I'm not going to, I'm not going to use them against you. Whatever it is that keeps you up at night and torments you, whatever sort of guilt, whatever you've done, you think, I'm never going to get beyond this. God has already forgotten about it. He's already forgotten about it in Christ. And he promises that he's going to be with you. He's going to sustain you. And when you sin, the blood of Christ will cover it. And when you fail, when I blow it again, when I make that remark, I shouldn't have. And when I get frustrated, impatient, like I know I shouldn't. When I say things and I do things and I think things that I know I shouldn't, his blood has already covered it for me. I'm already experiencing the forgiveness of God in Christ because what Jesus did was so much greater than what John could ever do. Jesus offered complete and total forgiveness. So what defines you this morning, talk about identity, is not what you've done, not what you are preparing to do, nor what you could ever do. What defines you this morning is what Christ has done on your behalf, living for you, dying for you, being raised to new life for you. His baptism of fire is a metaphor for the new birth where God takes someone who is hopeless and he gives them hope, where he takes someone who was enslaved again and he grants them freedom, where he takes someone who's dead, completely dead, spiritually dead, and he makes them alive. This is what Jesus, this is what makes Jesus infinitely greater than anyone else. He does what no one else can do and leads us to the place of repentance, faith, and worship. 
So we taste and see the goodness of God and we rejoice. Let's pray.